A couple of times a year, something weird shows up in the sky. Sometimes we can see it ourselves when small pieces of meteors or space junk streak through the atmosphere. It happened around 11 o'clock last night, a fireball flying across the western sky. People from Vancouver Island to Brooks, Alberta reported seeing something in the sky. Sometimes we detect bigger things headed our way and we all wonder for a minute what would happen if they hit us. In cosmic terms, this is a very close encounter, the closest one that NASA has ever seen for something this big. And sometimes we see things and we just wonder what the heck the universe has sent our way. Three years ago, we encountered an object that looked like, well, it looked like a cigar, but it also looked like nothing we'd ever seen in space before. And now, one of the world's leading astrophysicists has a new book that tries to answer the question of what it was. It was aliens. No, really, aliens. It was proof that somewhere out there is intelligent life. It was proof that we're not alone. Don't believe me? Okay, fine. Let's see if you believe him. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Avi Loeb is the astrophysicist that I mentioned. He is from Harvard University, and he is the author of Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Hello, Avi. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. Um, this is not the first interview you've done about this book. You've done many, and... Uh, I've seen you basically everywhere as, I guess, the quote-unquote scientist who says we have proof of aliens. Is that, is that an accurate way to refer to you? Um, well, certainly as the scientist that, that is everywhere, because I had about 150 interviews over the past few weeks, but, uh, you know, we have clues that perhaps um, the first object that we found uh, near Earth that came from outside the solar system may have been a, a technological artifact. And that may indicate that not only we are not alone, but there may, there may very well be a smarter kid on the block. So 2017 um, was a long time ago by the standards we judge time by now. Uh, maybe you could take us back there and just describe what we saw and, and what we thought of it at the time. So this object was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii and there was given the name Oumuamua, uh, which means in the Hawaiian language, a scout or a messenger from far away. It was the first object we identified near the Earth that originated uh, far from the sun, uh, outside the solar system. And we know that because it moved at a very high speed relative to the sun. It couldn't be bound to the sun like all the other objects we've seen before. The planets are bound to the sun. Uh, at first, astronomers thought, well, it's probably just a comet because uh, uh, if our planetary systems around other stars have objects just like our solar system has, the, some of them may be lost. In uh, Those that are loosely bound can be torn apart from their hosts and, um, and then fill in uh, interstellar space. And if one of them comes into our solar system, it would look just like the objects we have already in the solar system. And the only problem with that 
is that it didn't have a cometary tail. There was no gas around it, no evaporation as a result of it coming close to the sun. So then astronomers said, okay, well, maybe it's just a rock. But as it was tumbling, the brightness that it showed changed by a factor of 10. And the, the brightness stems from reflected sunlight. So that meant that the area of the object projected on the sky varied by a factor of 10. And if you imagine a sheet of paper tumbling in the wind, it's very unlikely to see it exactly edge on. So a factor of 10 is a lot. And um, there was the question of what geometry it has. And people try to model the reflection of sunlight and infer that most likely it was a flat object, pancake-like, not cigar-shaped the way it was depicted in a very popular um, cartoon. Mm -hmm. And so um, here you have a flat object that um, doesn't have a cometary tail. And then turns out it also showed an excess push uh, away from the sun. In addition to the sun's gravity, there was another force acting on it that declined inversely with distance squared. The question was, what gives that push? Uh, under normal circumstances, it would have been the cometary tail through the, the rocket effect. Um, when gas evaporates one way, it pushes the object the other way. But uh, there was no gas. And so um, the only possible explanation I could think, the reflection of sunlight is doing it. And for that, the object needs to be very thin uh, so that it will have a large area for its weight, sort of like a sail. And in difference from a sail on a boat uh, that is being driven by the wind reflecting off its surface, here it's the sunlight that is bouncing off the surface that propels it. And we are currently developing this technology here on Earth for space exploration. It's called the light sail. And uh, potentially, Oumuamua was just a very thin object that was pushed by uh, light in addition to the force of gravity acting on it. I should say there was another object like that um, discovered a few months ago in September 2020. And that, even though it was given initially an astronomical name, 2020 SO, after being discovered by, again by PANSTARS, the same uh, telescope in Hawaii, this one uh, was bound to the sun. And in fact, uh, the astronomers realized that uh, in 1966, it came out of the Earth and it was a rocket booster that uh, was kicked into space uh, in hmm. a lunar lander mission, Surveyor 2. Uh, and um, this object was thin, uh, and as a result, it exhibited uh, an extra push from the sun without showing a cometary tail. So here we have an example of an artificial object, and we produced it. But in the case of Oumuamua, the question is, who produced it? Do you remember the moment back then when the thought struck you that this really might be something different than anything we'd seen before? Did you have sort of that moment? Yeah, that was um, about uh, seven months after the, the discovery of Oumuamua that a paper came out uh, in Nature magazine uh, reporting about the success acceleration. And that was the most unusual uh, property of Oumuamua in my mind, because it didn't show any cometary tail. And you needed about a 10% of the mass of the object to be evaporated in order to give it the push that was detected. And um, at that point, I started thinking, uh, well, it's so weird. There are so many aspects of it that do not quite uh, 
match what we expected, that perhaps it's a technological relic. Um, it also came from a very special frame of reference. It was uh, at rest in the local standard of rest, which is the frame where you average over the motion of all the stars. And uh, it's sort of like the public parking lot uh, locally. And we find this object there hmm. parked. And then the sun ran into it, just like a ship running into a buoy on the surface of an ocean is standing still. And uh, that's another very peculiar fact about it because um, only one in 500 stars is so much at rest as Oumuamua was relative to the local standard of rest. So, uh, you know, putting all of these things together, we have to keep in mind that every anomaly uh, brings in a small likelihood, a small probability. And to get the overall probability of this happening, you need to multiply to take the product of each and every small probability that you have. And uh, then it ends up being an, a very unlikely event to happen for the first object we see. And at that point, yes, I remember that uh, I thought to myself, wow, this this is really interesting. And I wrote a Scientific American article uh, first uh, saying that um, uh, it may be technological and second, another one that um, summarized all the peculiar facts about Oumuamua. There were six of them. And uh, then after that, I decided to write a scientific paper together with a, a new postdoc of mine, Shmuel Biali, that just arrived to my research group. And I proposed uh, this possible project to him and he liked it. And so we wrote a scientific paper and then um, the media got a hold of the paper once it was accepted for publication within a few days after the submission. And uh, the public was extremely interested. And that's what uh, uh, triggered my initiative to write this book. Actually, um, there was so much press coverage and attention that it came to the attention of a literary agent uh, that I'm working with right now. Um, and she, Leslie Meredith, she contacted me and asked if I want to write a book on this subject. And I said, no, I'm I'm too busy. I, you know, I have a lot of research that I'm engaged in. I have leadership positions. I'm the director of two centers. But then she called me again and again and insisted. And eventually I listened to her and I owe the the existence of this book to her uh, insistence. I want to ask you if you can compare uh, the reaction from your peers in the research community uh, to your publication to the general public who got so excited about it and and, and what their two reactions were like, because I think we're going to get at um, another point that, that you take on in your book by doing that. Right. Um I think that the heart of the general public is in the right place. Um, this is the most fundamental question that we can address um, uh, because it will give us a different perspective about our life. If we are not the smartest kid on the block, we could also learn from either their experiences or their technologies that may be much more advanced than ours. So potentially it would be one of the most uh, exciting and um, important events in human history to find out that we are not alone and that there might be a smarter kid on the block. And the public recognizes that, and that's why there is so much interest. The public is starved for knowledge, scientific knowledge on this question. And uh, that is because that's the fault of the academic community, because scientists refuse to discuss it. Uh, many scientists say 
we need extraordinary evidence to even contemplate the possibility that Oumuamua was artificial. And to that I say, you know, if you regard all the anomalies that I mentioned, then it is quite extraordinary. We've never seen anything like it. And any astronomer that tried to explain the anomalies of Oumuamua from a natural source had to contemplate something that we have never seen before, like a hydrogen iceberg, cloud of dust particles. Um, and if you need to imagine things that we have never seen before to make it natural, then why not make it artificial? That should be on the table, that should be open for discussion, and there is nothing bad about it. We just collect more data on other objects that we find in the future. We can take a photograph, a picture is worth a thousand words, and then we will figure out if this is a rock or an artificial object. Just like walking on the beach, you know, most of the time you see natural uh, rocks, but every now and then you stumble across a plastic bottle, and that indicates civilization is around. So right now the scientific community has a taboo on this subject, and I get a lot of pushback, but through my book, through my uh, advocacy, I hope that the culture will change. And my hope is really with the young people, uh, because they do not have prejudice or baggage, uh, and they can bring a better future to science. The only problem is that by having the acidic uh, environment where young people are discouraged from working in this area, first, there is no talent uh, entering the field. And second, you know, people are afraid that they will not get a job if they were to work on this subject. And therefore, the group of people working on the subject is not very large. And at the same time, there is not much funding. And uh, altogether, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's just like stepping on the grass and saying, look, it doesn't grow. So hmm. when people say, we don't have extraordinary evidence, it's just because you're not allowing young people to uh, research this subject freely without being bullied and uh, not providing the funds necessary for making advances in this field. Um, and I want to change this culture. I think uh, it's in, in exactly the opposite place of where it should be. There is nothing more conservative in science than saying, you know, if I find something in one system and I replicate the conditions of the system in many other systems, then I will get similar outcomes. This is the most fundamental principle. That's the most conservative commonsensical thing to do. And so we have so many other planets, planets like the Earth uh, around stars like the Sun. There are billions of them. Why wouldn't we get uh, any uh, things that are similar to us over there? And, and perhaps they're not alive. They might be dead. But um, the one advantage of doing archaeology, looking for relics, is that you don't need them to be alive when you find the evidence. Where does that taboo come from? Does it come from from Hollywood and the movies, from early space exploration? Because it, as a layperson, it seems a little absurd to me that there would be a taboo around this because this is one of the things that I am the most interested in when it comes to scientific discovery. Right. And um, I told my wife, uh, actually, just before I started writing the book, that, you know, I find the situation quite remarkable because... Um, most of my career was dedicated to cosmology, the study of the universe and study of black holes. And I got to this subject by chance. And um, 
Oumuamua showed up and uh, had all these peculiar properties. And I was trying to be as honest as I am with, with anything I, I did in the past, use the same methodology without any prejudice. And then I see a backlash and a response that is very unusual and not typical of the other uh, research areas that I've worked in. And I try to understand why. And, you know, one possibility is uh, that it touches on people's uh, ego. They, they want to feel special and unique. And in general, uh, talking about other kids being smarter, uh, you know, st strikes a nerve. It, it really affects people. They don't want to hear about it. It's just like my daughters, you know, when they were young, they thought that they have special qualities. They would have preferred to stay at home and continue to have this illusion but we send them to a kindergarten where they saw other kids with even better qualities. And of course, it was not very thrilling for them to find out. There is another aspect to this that you mentioned, which is in popular culture, you have uh, uh, science fiction literature and um, films, and uh, you also have uh, discussions that are not substantiated by a lot of evidence about unidentified flying objects. And uh, the scientists are shying away because they worry that it will uh, damage their reputation if they were to deal with the same subject. And my point is quite simple on that. During the Dark Ages, uh, there were people claiming that the human body has some magical powers, a soul, and we are not supposed to dissect it or to operate it. Imagine if scientists would say, we don't want to discuss the human body. Where would modern medicine be? Um, just because other people make nonsensical statements about the subject doesn't mean that science cannot address it. In fact, it should address it using the scientific method and instrumentation if it can address it. And in the context of uh, extraterrestrial intelligence, we have the telescopes that can give us the answers. If only the scientific community would be willing to discuss it openly. Why is it so difficult to consider, contemplate the possibility that Oumuamua was artificial uh, it will only lead us to examine objects of the same type more carefully in the future. And we can figure it out. We can take a photograph, get as much evidence as possible. That's what the philosophers during the days of Galileo did. They knew that the sun moves around the earth. They didn't want to look through Galileo's telescope and they put him in house arrest. And the, the only thing that came out of that was that they maintained their ignorance. Reality doesn't care if you ignore it. The Earth continued to move around the sun. If we had um, the necessary will and funding and uh, the talent in the field, all of which you've just mentioned, how would we go about proving it one way or another, whether or not this was uh, a relic of artificial life? Uh, you know, and, and by looking at other ones, you know, how long would it take? Because one thing that I've been startled by is that it actually doesn't seem like it would be that crazy an undertaking. That's right. Um, you know, when I go to the kitchen and I find an ant, I usually get alarmed because it means there must be many more ants uh, hiding there somewhere. Um, and the same applies to the search for interstellar objects. Um, we looked, we surveyed the sky with uh, pan stars for a few years and found the uh, Oumuamua. That means that every few years we'll find another one. And um, un it's very unlikely that we, we just happen to look at the right time if it's the only object around. Um, and um, there will be, the, the, the news are even more uplifting because there, there will be another 
observatory that is much more capable than PANSTARS that will start its operations in less than three years in uh, Chile. It's called the Vera Rubin Observatory, and it will survey the sky and could potentially find um, one or more more like object every month. So if we find many of these and they share similar properties, you know, we know what the properties of Oumuamua were. I mean, uh, my journey context started from the evidence. I didn't have a prejudice or any previous idea about looking for probes. I mean, it's just that this object showed up and I paid attention to the evidence. Just like uh, basketball coaches uh, say, uh, keep your eyes on the ball, not on the audience, you know. Um, so I, I was looking at the evidence and it led me in this path and we can look at, uh, get more evidence on objects of its type uh, in the future, especially if they're approaching us, we can send a camera that will take a close-up photo. And that would, I think, uh, close the argument if we have uh, a photograph of an object. We can easily tell if it's uh, a rock or an artificial object. I was just going to ask uh, something like that. Is there a tipping point at which the taboo goes away, we realize, pardon my French, but holy shit, this is happening, and we need to focus all our resources on this. Because if we did take a photograph of something and realize that it was artificial, that would be a profound change in everything from science to geopolitics, right? That's right. And and religion and philosophy. A lot of things will be affected. And that's why it's such an important question. And I talk about it as uh, Oumuamua's uh, wager in my book. Uh, the significance of it. Uh, is so large that just like uh, Pascal's wager about God, uh, since the possible existence of God carries so much weight, you really have to consider it very seriously and rather than dismiss it uh, in a tweet, you know, as people are doing now. And um, I think that we should uh, aspire to get as much evidence as possible on the next one that looks as weird and try to understand what its purpose is and is it functional, is it not, and what what was it originally designed to do and, and where did it come from and what does it tell us about uh, the, the manufacturer or the, the producer of this piece of equipment. And we potentially could land on, on, on an object like that or uh, and 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 examine it very carefully. Um, so there is a lot to be done, and I think all of it should be directed at getting more evidence. And of course, getting our hands on such an object would be the best. Avi, thank you so much for this discussion and uh, for taking us behind uh, the taboo in the scientific community. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Avi Loeb of Harvard University and the author of Extraterrestrial. That was The Big Story. For more from us, you know the address, thebigstorypodcast.ca. Please take our audience survey. Tell us what topics you like, what topics you hate, what you need to hear more of, what I need to shut up about, anything. This is your podcast just as much as it is mine. I just have to work at it. You can, of course, always find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can always email us, the Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And you can find us in your favorite podcast player, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. We are also, by the way, now on Amazon Music. You can even ask Alexa to play the Big Story Podcast. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.